A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 221, The Triptych. The situation is this, Alexius wants Antioch, but Bohemond holds it. Bohemond wants to keep the city, but is under pressure from every direction. Turks to the north, Aleppans to the east, and the Byzantines from every other angle. The Norman lacks money and men. His defeat in battle in 1104 has allowed his enemies to begin closing in. So he makes a fateful decision, to return to Western Europe to recruit a new army and to return to Antioch with it. He knows, though, that in order to get an army from west to east, he must pass through Byzantium. He realises that he must defeat Alexius once again, only by inflicting some kind of punishment on the Vasilevs can he force him to relinquish the pressure on Antioch and accept Bohemond as its rightful lord. One way or another, Bohemond's story has reached its final chapter. Bohemond's journey home illustrates the problem he was up against. Naturally, he was going to sail from Antioch to Italy, but Byzantium rules the waves. The Norman was going to have to stop off at at least half a dozen Roman ports in order to get back to Apulia. So, having left Antioch in Tancred's care, Bohemond had his men announce that the prince is dead. No, seriously, Bohemond's dead. Some kind of sickness. As you can see, we have loaded his coffin onto this ship, and we're sailing it home to Italy. Yes, yes, it's it's terribly sad news. According to Anna, this was the routine, as Bohemond's men put in at various ports on their way towards Corfu, on the west coast of Greece. His men dressed and acted as if they were in mourning, and Bohemond himself lay in the coffin that was placed up on deck. In order to simulate the smell of a corpse, the Normans killed a cockerel and placed it at the top of the casket. Bohemond endured the stench and only revealed himself when he was about to leave Corfu for the Italian mainland. According to Anna, he taunted the local Byzantine governor, telling him to send a message to Alexius. 
As far as you and your friends are concerned, I am a corpse, but to myself and my friends it is manifest that I am a living man, plotting a diabolical end for you. In order to throw into tumult the Roman world which you rule, I who was alive became dead, and now I who died am alive. If I reach the mainland of Italy and cast eyes on the Lombards and all the Latins, the Germans and our own Franks, men full of martial valour, then with many a murder I will make your cities and your provinces run with blood until I set up my spear in Byzantium itself. As Anna's work reaches its climax, she really lets her hair down and casts Bohemond fully as the scenery-chewing villain. The title of today's episode, The Triptych, refers to several scholars who conclude that the Alexiad is a three-act play centering on Alexius's victory over Bohemond. Act 1 saw the wars of the 1080s, which we covered back in episodes 199 and 201. Act 2 was the First Crusade, and now we enter our final act, where Bohemond tries to seize Constantinople itself and is utterly defeated. In reality, the Normans' motives were more complex. He had what he wanted, Antioch, but he knew that as long as the Romans were opposed to him, he would never be secure in his new kingdom. He needed the Byzantines to accept him as the rightful ruler of Syria. And as we all know by now, in medieval times, might made right. If Bohemond could recruit an army that threatened Alexius's vital interests, perhaps the emperor could be persuaded to change his tune. Bohemond landed in Apulia in spring 1105 to a hero's welcome. The survivors of the First Crusade had sailed home five years earlier, and every one of them had a story about Bohemond. The hero of Dorylaeum, the victor over Ridwan and Kerbuga, Bohemond was a star. The Norman spent some time with his friends and family and ordered that preparations begin on a fleet that would eventually carry his new army across the waters. Then he headed for Rome, arriving in September. Bohemond spent two months in the Eternal City. When he departed, he carried with him the Pope's support for his campaign and a papal legate in his entourage who would help him recruit soldiers. Scholars are divided on exactly what Pope Pascal understood this new campaign to be. Bohemond wanted to harness crusading fever in order to aid his recruitment, and yet he must have been open about his plans to attack Alexius. He could hardly hide the fact that he was at odds with the emperor. So we assume that Bohemond was offering to take new recruits to the Holy Land to support the Kingdom of Jerusalem but that some kind of attack on Byzantium first was part of the deal. One Latin historian tells us that in order to justify an attack on a Christian kingdom, Bohemond used the same logic that his father had back in the 1080s. If you'll recall, Giscard had a man with him who claimed to be the deposed emperor, Michael Ducas. The war could therefore be presented as an attempt to restore a rightful ruler 
rather than a cynical land grab. Apparently, Bohemond had with him members of the Theogenes family, as in Romanos Theogenes, the emperor at Manzikert. This detail is not mentioned by Anna, so it's difficult to know if it's true, but it would certainly fit with Bohemond's wider strategy. If he could defeat Alexius in battle, then the emperor's enemies might attempt to overthrow him. A new emperor would be far more amenable to striking a deal with Bohemond in order to put an end to war. So perhaps Bohemond was courting those who were estranged from Alexius's court. Sadly, it's not hard to believe that Pope Pascal agreed to this scheme. Urban's predecessor Gregory had given Giscard similar backing for an assault on Byzantium, and what may have sweetened the deal for the pontiff was the extension of the crusading mission. The disasters of the crusade of 1101 had reflected badly on Pascal. Why had men wearing the cross on a mission he'd commanded been slaughtered on the plateau? The Byzantines were easy scapegoats to pin the blame on, and here was Bohemond offering to recruit a new army to head to Jerusalem, who could also set the Eastern Romans straight and get crusading back on a successful path. Whatever exactly was said, Pascal gave the operation his blessing, and Bohemond headed for France around Christmas 1105. Back in Constantinople, Alexius was alert to the danger. When reports reached him that Bohemond was on the move, the emperor knew exactly what was coming next. Invade the Balkans from Apulia once, shame on you. But twice, no, no. The Vasilevs immediately called upon his diplomatic network to try and shut the Normans down. The year before, he'd married his son John to a Hungarian princess, a shrewd move, given that so many Latins had travelled through Hungary during the First Crusade. Bohemond would get no help there. Next, the emperor wrote to the Italian city-states to warn them against aiding the invasion. This included calling on Venice to abide by the treaty they'd signed the last time the Normans came calling. Next, Alexius travelled in person to Thessalonica to oversee the defences in the Western Balkans. He ordered the governor of Dyrrhachium to improve the city's battlements and stockpile supplies. According to Anna, he survived another assassination attempt during this journey. Clearly, the Vasilevs couldn't completely trust the Byzantine elite yet, but he did take steps to try and involve them in this mission. For some time now, the emperor had been cultivating the sons of leading families. Anna says he'd personally trained 300 of them, in how to command troops. He now gave each a small detachment and dispatched them to the valleys and mountain passes around Dyrrhachium to get used to the terrain and prepare to block any attempt to move through them. The Vasilevs also recalled his troops from the east. Some of his most experienced commanders were currently in Cilicia and Laodicea, putting pressure on Tancred. But now that the home front was under threat, Alexius wanted everyone by his side. Over in France, Bohemond was having a fruitful time. The story of his exploits in the east had been lapped up in Francia. A couple of times during the First Crusade, I mentioned an anonymous soldier who was in the Norman camp. 
he had now published his history of the campaign, which had been widely copied and read. Bohemond was its central character, and now here he was, the larger-than-life hero of the journey to Jerusalem, in their midst. Not only did men flock to his banner, but women were keen to see him too. Bohemond was the most eligible bachelor in Europe, and received many letters from wealthy men with unattached daughters. Of course, Bohemond wasn't going to settle for second best. At Easter 1106, he married the daughter of the King of France, a woman who'd broken off her own engagement when she'd heard that Giscard's son was available. Everywhere Bohemond went, he confirmed stories of Byzantine betrayal to justify his seizure of Antioch and the coming campaign. These narratives would take root, and the next wave of histories about the First Crusade would elaborate, I'm sorry, I mean fabricate stories about Alexius. By August, Bohemond was back in Italy, with recruits from across Western Europe following slowly in his wake. We don't have reliable numbers, as usual, but it sounds like an army of ten to 15,000 at the most. This was not on the scale of the Crusade of 1101, but it gave Bohemond enough men to compete with Alexius on a reasonably level playing field. It took the recruits and the fleet a year to get ready, so it wasn't until October 1107 that Bohemond was able to set sail from Brindisi. Alexius ordered his fleet to link up with the Venetians and prevent the Normans from crossing, but they failed. Bohemond made it across the Adriatic and landed at Orlon in the Balkans, the same harbour he'd helped capture 26 years earlier. Bohemond's army fanned out and subdued surrounding areas before marching on Dyrrhachium. If they were going to sustain a campaign in the Balkans, they had to secure the vital port city. But from that point onwards, everything went against Bohemond. The garrison of Dyrrhachium were well prepared for his initial assault and showed no sign of fear in the face of a siege. And soon the Norman scouts were reporting that every valley and pass in the region was blockaded by Byzantine troops. Frustrated and surrounded, Bohemond prepared his men for a winter blockade. The next few months turned into a grim reminder of the worst days of the First Crusade. Sickness swept the camp, food began running out, and men began to grumble about what the great Bohemond would do next. Venetian and Byzantine ships were now thoroughly patrolling the coast, meaning no reinforcement or resupply was likely. When spring 1108 emerged, the Prince of Antioch made a concerted attempt to seize Dyrrhachium. A ram was brought up to the walls, but the defenders set it on fire. A tunnel was dug under the walls, but the Byzantines dug a counter-tunnel and smoked their enemy out. Finally, Bohemond turned to the tactics that had taken Jerusalem. He constructed a huge siege tower and pushed it towards the walls, but once again fire was to prove its downfall. With things getting desperate, Bohemond ordered his troops to attack various Byzantine positions in the mountains and valleys. With heavy losses, the Romans held the line. 
Alexius had once again made his way to Thessalonica and was very pleased to hear how the noose was tightening. The emperor eventually advanced to the front line and deployed a few tricks to try and break the Western army. He sent letters to all of Bohemond's sub-commanders, offering them cash and new positions if they switched sides. But instead of writing a formal letter of introduction, the Vasilevs phrased his correspondence in the form of a reply, as if he wasn't making fresh offers, but responding to requests from Bohemond's men to betray their commander. Bohemond was too clever to fall for this scheme, but it had the desired effect nonetheless. His subordinates began to petition him to negotiate with Alexius. Many of their men were complaining loudly that they had come on this trip for the Holy Sepulchre. Not for this. With great reluctance then, Bohemond entered Alexius's tent, unarmed, as a supplicant, in September 1108. One can only imagine the tension in the room, as the Norman agreed to abandon his campaign and concede to the Emperor's demands. They were extremely lenient as these things go, but they spelt an end to Bohemond's decades-long quest to break off a piece of Byzantium for himself. Anna gleefully copies down the entire text of the treaty that she found in the Imperial archives. In it, Bohemond admits to having broken his word. He promises to become the emperor's liege man and to never harm Byzantine interests again. He admits that Antioch is the emperor's property and promises to work to bring it back under his control. The extreme leniency comes in when it emerges that Alexius was going to put Bohemond on the payroll as Antioch's governor, and only upon his death was it expected that imperial agents would take possession of the city. I can hear you asking why on earth Alexius would trust Bohemond at this point, and I suppose the reality is that the emperor couldn't physically get to Antioch, and he knew Tancred would resist any Byzantine force sent to reclaim the city. But Tancred might well let his uncle back in, and at this stage Alexius considered that his best chance of eventually regaining the city. After all, Bohemond had just put his seal on a humiliating document where he admitted to having broken a serious oath. The treaty was signed in front of dozens of witnesses, including representatives from his homeland, from Hungary, and Dalmatia. It would be widely understood that Bohemond was a traitor, with no honour, if he tried to resist again, and Bohemond's appeal at this point was as a Christ-supported warrior. It was a gamble, of course, but Alexius understood that back in the West, Bohemond was a hugely popular figure. He could have killed or imprisoned the Norman, but recognised that only he would emerge as a villain from that story. Better to neuter Bohemond and keep him happy for his lifetime, while doing everything possible to get Byzantine agents on hand for when he finally died. It was a muted victory in the end, one full of nuance and realpolitik. Bohemond had finally been defeated, his ambitions ended, and a warning issued to the rest of Norman Italy not to try anything similar. But when it came to Antioch, 
little had been achieved. By the time Bohemond agreed to peace, it was too late in the year to sail, so the Western army was fed and supplied by the Byzantines until the following spring. Some then headed home, some sailed for Jerusalem. Bohemond himself went home. He would spend the rest of his days in Apulia and would never return to Antioch. Perhaps he knew that he was now more hindrance than help to Tancred. Giscard's son had aimed high and ultimately failed. He was in his mid-fifties and was perhaps content to spend the rest of his days with his wife and son rather than on the battlefields of Syria. He would die four years later, and Tancred refused to honour the terms that his uncle had agreed. In fact, since Alexius had withdrawn his best troops from the east, Tancred was able to strengthen his position, taking Cilicia and Laodicea from Byzantine hands. In the end, then, was this the glorious victory that Anna presents it as? In some ways, yes. In many ways, no. To his immense credit, Alexius had prevented the Normans from creating a Balkan state. Since taking control of Italy, Giscard and his brood had clearly seen the advantages in controlling ports on each side of the Adriatic. They had been correct in identifying Byzantium as a vulnerable state and had come close to seizing a piece of it. But really, they'd blown their chance back in the 1080s. Returning to the same spot two decades later was a big mistake. Alexius was not the headstrong young man he'd once been. On this occasion, he was almost Basil II-like taking every precaution possible to make sure that Bohemond was trapped outside Dyrrhachium. Forcing Bohemond to publicly concede on every point of difference was a victory, but one that was largely ignored in the West and in Outremer. You can still visit Bohemond's mausoleum in Puglia, where the inscription claims, No better man than he will be born again in the universe. It also says Greece was conquered four times. A slight exaggeration, to say the least. Bohemond remains a fascinating figure, and in the history of Byzantium he is a key signal of change. Up until the 10th century, Western mercenaries had served quietly in the Roman army, doing their job well for the type of pay they could rarely get at home. It was with the coming of the Normans that things began to change. One after another, Norman captains began to test imperial authority and act without the emperor's permission to see what the consequences would be. Bohemond followed in this tradition, both attacking the Romans from outside and serving them from within. With hindsight, it's easy to look at Bohemond's career and conclude that he never planned on serving the empire loyally. His good behaviour during the early part of the First Crusade was simply a ruse to get him to the gates of Antioch, at which point his true scheme could be revealed. But several historians argue that this was not the case. The most eloquent on this line of thought is Paul Magdaleno. He argues that it was the Crusade itself 
that changed everything. If Antioch had fallen quickly, and Tatikios had been made its governor, then Bohemond's career would have had a very different trajectory. Perhaps he would have gone on to try and become king of Jerusalem, or perhaps he would have taken control of Edessa and worked closely with Tatikios to create a Christian-dominated Syria. His military brilliance would have been a huge asset to Byzantium, and there's no reason, in theory, he couldn't have served as Antioch's governor, if it was administered and garrisoned by loyal Roman troops. Instead, the siege of Antioch dragged on and on, during which time Bohemond became a legend, the man who God had put his faith in. It seemed as if, with Bohemond leading them, the Crusaders could overcome any odds. Suddenly, in this new context, Bohemond spied a future outside Byzantine service, a future that didn't exist until Alexius and then Urban called for this armed pilgrimage. Western mercenaries had behaved well in Byzantium because they were a long way from home and the pay was good. Bohemond was now a long way from home and yet men were flocking to serve him and the possibility of becoming king of his own kingdom was too tempting to turn down. There is irony in this line of argument that Alexius's attempt to recruit more mercenaries by drawing on their love of Jerusalem had ultimately cost him their service. And there is tragedy in this too. Exactly 100 years after Bohemond decided to leave Antioch to raise a crusade against Byzantium, a crusading army would sack Constantinople. Despite framing this episode as a triumph, even Anna must have recognised that there was something hollow about her father's victory. She wrote in the 1140s, at which point Antioch was still in foreign hands. The hard work is still not over for Alexius. Next time, he will be forced to campaign again in Anatolia, as the Turks begin to invade the western plateau once more. The emperor will also be forced to explore new deals with the Latins as he seeks a settlement to the outstanding questions which the crusade had created. For those of you who enjoy graphic novels, I can thoroughly recommend Theophano, a Byzantine tale, which I've just finished reading. It's a beautifully drawn comic telling the life story of Theophano, Basil II's mother. If you'll recall, she was supposedly a common woman from Constantinople who captured the eye of Romanos II, the son of Constantine Porfiroyenitos. She married him and bore Basil and Constantine, but then Romanos suddenly died, and she ended up marrying Nicephorus Phocas in order to maintain dynastic continuity. And then there's the question of her relationship with John Zimiskis. And, well, I'm sure you remember what happened next. Check it out on Amazon, in Kindle or paperback, or go to byzantinetales.com.